0: This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! South North April of 142! Ron Buffett. Carl Icahn. Don Templeton.
1: Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guys. problem. Dan Druckenmiller. George Soros, Paul to the zone. Peter Lehman. You wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. She gets slaughtered.
0: My guest for this episode is Mark Yusko. And for listeners of this podcast, Mark needs no introduction. I was just a couple of months ago, I spoke with Mark for the show, and we went into great detail uh, about his investment process and his unique approach to the markets. But it turns out that an hour wasn't near enough time for Mark and I. Uh, in this episode, we discuss a ton of new material, um, different topics, um, Gann and Bradley cycles and uh, lots of other stuff um, not the least of which is a bet Warren Buffett recently proposed and Mark accepted but I should just let Mark explain it um, so please enjoy my conversation with Mark Yusko and we are live Mark Yusko thanks for coming back to the show I, I had such a great time the first time that I couldn't help but ask you back again um, especially in light of some recent news so welcome back to the show
1: well, Jesse, thanks for having me, and I have to tell you that uh, you know I've, I've been spoiled. We had such a great time last time, you know, um, and I've done a couple other podcasts, and you know I just have so much fun on yours that uh, it's tough to for the others to live up to it.
0: Well, I'm flattered. It's for me, it's very easy when I have such a uh, you know brilliant guest to to talk to. But I got to ask you right off the bat. Uh, you offered um, to take Warren Buffett up on a very famous bet he made ten years ago. He was on TV recently again talking about the bet. Um, what, What's this all about?
1: Yeah, so here's the interesting thing. You know, um, Protege Partners, Ted Side, he's of Protege Partners, um, made a bet with Warren to uh, where Warren would take the S and P, and Ted would take a basket of hedge fund of funds, and they. They put together this million-dollar bet for charity, um, and it launched on January 1st, 2008, coming to an end here January 1st, 2018. And there was a recent article, obviously, talking about the the impending end of the bet and basically claiming victory for, for Warren. And, you know, I think CNBC got uh, on air and said, well, you know, are you interested in in taking a a new bet. And I think, I think they actually asked him the question because I, when that article came out a couple months ago saying that, uh, you know, the new, the old bet was coming to an end. I said, well, look, I want to go on record saying I'd like to to challenge Mr. Buffett to uh, another bet for the next 10 years um, because I feel so strongly about where we are in the cycle and and why it's so important to get hedged or to focus more on, on alpha than beta. And they actually even used my tweet um, in their interview with him uh, last week on television. And so uh, I actually called him that afternoon and spoke with him. And he had a nice conversation. And you know, one of his concerns was that at 87... You know, he he uh, might not be around to collect if he were to win. And, you know, we joked back and forth that I said he uh, I fully expected he would do better than Roy Newberger, He went in the office every day till he was 94 and managed his own money to his 101. And he said, yeah, my friend Irv Khan made it to 107. Said at that rate, you could, do, <laughs> you could do not only 2.0, but you could do 3.0. So two sets of 10 years. Uh, and he said he'd entertain my proposal. And so I put together a proposal and I sent it off, and um, so that's that's the fun part of the story. And then, unfortunately, the, the the not so fun part of the story is literally just before I got on the call here with you, uh, I got an email from from Warren saying that um, you know, given his his age, he was reticent to take another ten year bet um, because he didn't think the quality of conversation. Uh, at 97, you know, would be as high, um, which, you yeah, know, I respect his view. Um, although I think it's the conversation all along that matters, and particularly the conversation right now. So uh, I still think he should have taken the bet.
0: Yeah. You know, and when I found out that he hesitated and he didn't just take you up on it right when you offered, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, it's probably because he does agree with a lot of your reasoning for wanting to take the bet. I mean, and let's, so let's, let's dig into that. Why why do you think, you know, um, hedge fund strategies or certain hedge fund strategies should perform better than the S&P 500 over the next 10 years?
1: Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things that gets lost in periods of, uh, dominance of one style or strategy, whether that's value versus growth, or whether that's long only versus long short, or whether that's international versus developed, or uh, domestic, I mean, or, or emerging markets versus developed, is people get caught in recency bias. You know, they think that the fact that, that long only or index funds or passive have beaten long short or active or, um, you know, more um, tactical strategies over the past seven years means that they always will. And what we know from history is that's actually exactly not true. Um, Over the last 40 years, uh, active management has outperformed about half the time and passive management has outperformed half the time. Now, one of the things, though, Jesse, and this is one of my pet peeves, is there's no such thing as passive management, by the way. You know, passive is just slow, active. Um, you know, the S&P over 30 years replaced 85% of the names in the index. That's not passive. You know, that is active. It's just a committee decides each year who gets to be in the index and who's out. And so the other thing about these index strategies is they're capitalization weighted, which means they're basically momentum strategies. They buy more of things as they go up. And when does momentum work? Well, momentum works when central banks are expanding their monetary policy, and they tend to underperform when central banks are tightening their monetary policy. Well, we've had a seven, eight year period of expansionary, in fact, record expansionary monetary policy. So it's no surprise that um, index funds came back and and won the bet. I think what's lost on most people is Warren was behind. On the original bet for the first five years, right, started January first, two thousand eight. People forget the market fell fifty-eight percent, peak to trough, and only because of you know the super monetary policy of quantitative easing did we have this you know high sharp ratio, low volatility melt up that we're in right now. So, so that's a long way of saying that these things are cyclical. And that cycles matter, and we'll probably talk later about some other things that cycles matter on. And I think we're at a very, very important juncture where uh, people who buy into the index today are going to suffer very negative returns over the next decade, just like they did in 2000 to 2010. You know, and that's the last time that value was dead, active management was dead, and hedge funds were dead in 2000, when when people like Julian Robertson had to shut down his hedge fund because everybody thought he had lost it. And in fact, truth be told, people thought that Warren had lost it because Berkshire was in a 50% drawdown of their own in that period because he didn't do tech stocks. So people don't have long memories. They forget the past and they think that the current environment is going to continue in the future. And I think that's foolish
0: yeah and and um, you make some important points uh, about passive um, and I think that is a great point that passive is an active strategy especially when you market cap weight it um, and you know I, I recently wrote a blog post asking you know when has any investment discipline or strategy ever become as popular as passive investing is today and had a pleasant outcome you know it's, and, and that would so that's never,
1: Jesse Hashtag that would be never.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what I I think about. And, And then, you know, on the flip side of that, you know, like you said, a lot of these guys are struggling. I mean, Hugh Hendry just shut down his fund. John Burbank shut down his long short fund earlier this year. Whitney Tilson just shut down his hedge fund. Mark Hart shut down his China fund. All these guys that I respect a ton are going through... Just massive, massive pain in trying to um, trade, you know, these markets and find opportunities. And everybody who's been passive, you know, feels like a hero. So, you know, just from a st- sentiment standpoint, this feels very, very extreme, um, you know, d- disparity between the two strategies.
1: Well, it is extreme. And I'll tell you how extreme it is. Right. I mean, Warren wrote me this nice letter saying that he'd, he'd like to decline you know, my proposal. And yet the final line of his, of his note says, I am confident that the S&P 500 will beat the vast majority of active managers net of fees over the next decade. Like, wait a second. If you're that supremely confident, then you kind of have to take the bet. And importantly, I think you brought up the point that, that the hesitation, even in the interview on CNBC, says that perhaps not as confident, yet telling people to buy index funds at near all-time record valuations, where the expected return, according to people like Rob Arnott and Jeremy Grantham and Cliff Asnes, heck, even John Bogle said that expected returns over the next decade in stocks are going to be 3 or 4%. That just doesn't seem like a good investment strategy from here. It's not about what happened yeah. the last 10 years. It's about what's going to happen the next 10 years. And well, yeah, and,
0: yeah but, when, when you take his uh, market cap to GDP measurement. Yeah, you know, it's almost at a record high it's just below I think the dot com peak. And when you flip that upside down and look at forward 10 year returns, it's it's pretty highly correlated. It's not the best, but it has about an 80% negative correlation with forward 10 year returns. And right now it's suggesting, uh, you know, almost negative -3% per year over the next 10. That's his metric. Yeah, exactly. The Buffett indicator Buffett's metric.
1: Yeah, the Buffett right. indicator is saying we're going to have negative returns on equities for the next decade. The last time it said that in 2000, I actually showed that metric as well as a number of others to my board at at UNC. And particularly, I showed the forward projected returns from Jeremy Grantham. And my board chair says, Mark, you're not allowed to use the letters G, M, or O in a sentence ever again because that guy's (laughs) always wrong. He'll always be wrong. And it's impossible that the S&P could have a negative return for a decade. Well, it did. The next 10 years, the return was minus 1.9, minus 3.5 real. So you you lost about 40% of your purchasing power over the next decade. So we're there again. In fact, if if you follow any of John Hussman's work and you see you know, the the median price to sales where you take out the pollution of the market cap weighting, double counting, the median price to sales has never been higher. And, oh, it's know, off the chart. It's off the charts, yeah. literally. And, you know, you coined the term the everything bubble that shows that the average investor in this most hated bull market is the most exposed to financial assets they've ever been. And, you know, you look at market cap to GDP relative, um, to again, the median stock. And it's just, it's worse than the tech bubble. It's worse than the housing bubble. And this everything bubble is, is going to end very badly. And, you know, it's really interesting when you, you step back and, and try to look at things from, uh, a different vantage point or a different perspective. And it's really hard to look at at valuations, just, just pure valuations, um, look at them relative to history. So the interest rates are lower. Well, yeah, but think about that. Interest rates are correlated to growth regimes. So Back in 2000, interest rates were higher, but so were expected forward growth rates in GDP. So you should pay more for stocks when future growth is going to be high. The myth, in fact, that what Husband has this great chart that shows of all the data points in the last hundred years, there's never been a data point where the expected future growth is as low as today plus compared to the, the, the P.E. of, the, of the, the market. And that makes perfect sense. Are low yeah. interest rates a sign of economic strength or economic weakness? Think about around the world, where do they have high interest rates, where there's growth, where do they have low interest rates, where you have the killer Ds, bad demographics, excess debt, and deflation. So it seems crazy to me
0: yeah i think uh yeah jim grant phrased it uh you know really well recently we said we have depression era interest rates and boom time uh equity valuations it's a huge dichotomy that uh, is very difficult to explain such a great quote um,
1: such a great quote i'm going to steal that
0: literally yeah, <laughs> yeah. um uh, so, you know, it was very interesting to me for you to say, you know, Warren mentioned his age. I I mean, I, I just got to say, I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett. I owe him uh, an intellectual debt that, you know, will never be repaid. Uh, you know, I read all of the Berkshire letters, you know, years and years ago. And, and he really was, you know, influential in, in the creation of my process. Um, but yet. I think it's really. I in, in, sorry, go ahead.
1: I, I, me too. I, I agree completely.
0: Yeah, but I, I find it really interesting in just the last few years that he has kind of walked away from a lot of what he used to stand for, you know, like value investing and margin of safety and a lot of these things. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it seems like he's he's made a shift. And I, and I do think maybe that's just related to his age and, and and thinking about his legacy and not, you know, he does have so much influence in the markets that if he were ever to turn bearish, you know, he would he would probably feel horrible about uh, if he ha- if he did have a personal impact on the markets and people's finances by being publicly bearish. So, I mean, do you think that's that's entered into his thinking? At I think this it's point? a
1: great insight. I think it's a really important insight. And it's it's interesting because it's it's the exact opposite of his mentor, Ben Graham. You know, Ben Graham, unbeknownst to most people, but I wrote about this in, in one of my letters, you know, basically was a go go mo, mo investor as a youngster, you know, getting into the business in the roaring twenties. He was all about leverage and momentum and and uh you know, he had a spectacular flame out, losing just about everything, you know, lost most of his clients' money, lost most of his personal money in the crash because he didn't see it coming and he hit the wall with no skid marks, as I like to say. And, you know, what's amazing is it took that incredible loss for him to wake up and really dive deeply into the whole genre of value investing and and became ultimately the father of value investing and trained Warren. And Warren went on and built this business around this construct of value investing and, and, as you said, has now walked away from it and is now pushing momentum investing in the form of index funds. For the masses. Although, here's the funny thing about that. Everybody talks about Buffett's stock picking prowess and his approach to value investing. That's actually not the genius of Berkshire Hathaway. And I'm not saying he's not a genius stock picker, he may very well be, and I've never really analyzed the data. But the real genius of Berkshire Hathaway is they buy low volatility assets with positive cash flow and they lever up those assets with negative cost of capital financing because they have, they run an insurance company where they get to borrow with a negative cost of capital. They get paid to borrow money. And so they're, they're levering up the equivalent of a, of the S and P. So they're running a leveraged long portfolio comparing themselves to actually they don't compare themselves, but other people compare themselves to a single long portfolio it's not a fair fight so leverage portfolio should outperform and levering low volatility assets is a genius strategy so i'm not saying he's not an investment genius he is clearly um but it's not the deep value stock picking and and some of the names you know, like recent things like you know wells fargo and and the home mortgage company in canada don't seem to your point to be down the middle of the fairway for you know what he came into the business preaching
0: yeah Yeah. And, and, and exactly right. And so for me, you know, um, well recently, I guess it was two years ago, um, you know, Carl Icahn, another guy I have just huge respect for and has influenced me a great deal. He hired my friend, Jim Bruce to make a documentary called danger ahead. And you probably saw it on his his website. I I saw it at
1: 1201 midnight, the night it released. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and, and in that video he says, you know, if more people like me had come out, in 2006, seven and, and said, you know, publicly what we were seeing and tried to warn people, you know, we, we probably could feel better about ourselves. And so, you know, I look at Carl doing kind of something different, but then, you know, Warren's probably watching Carl, you know, get completely ridiculed for the past two years since that movie, yeah. you know, the, the documentary came out and thinking, well, I don't want to be, you know, in his shoes now that, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I just saw it on Twitter, but I, I thought it was a very appropriate, you know, um, little documentary about his concerns in the markets. And, you know, uh, people were just making fun of it left and right. Well, I mean, sure. that's something and, else was worried is, about.
1: This is Roger Babson all over again. You know, Roger Babson said the market was overvalued in 27, and it went up a lot. And he said it was overvalued in 28, and it went up a lot. And he said it was overvalued in 29, and everybody laughed at him and said, you know, you were wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Well, he wasn't wrong. He was just early. And sometimes that's the euphemism for wrong, but but he wasn't wrong. And people who would have got out in 27 would have saved themselves a lot of money. People who would have got out in 28 would have saved themselves a lot of money. People who got out in 29 would have saved themselves the most money. And what was amazing is, you know, three weeks after he said, you know, I repeat what I said last year and the year before, a crash is coming and it could be terrific. And people laughed at him. And Irving Fisher said, you know, the bears, because they always label us bears, if we say anything negative about the, their beloved markets, um, the bears are, are always wrong. And, you know, stocks have reached a permanently higher plateau. We know that was you know, two days before the end. And then we went down 80 to 6%. So I think it's not so much the concern about being early or wrong, like Carl has the challenge. I actually think your first point is dead on. I think, I think Warren has a dilemma. His, his gravitas is so large and justly deserved that if he were to come out um, and make negative comments or, or cautious comments, I think it could be perceived uh, negatively and it could have a reflexive uh, impact and, and we could, could have a lot of people who, look, the average person doesn't have any savings to begin with generally speaking. Um, because the wealthy will hold all the stocks and the average investor doesn't have very many stocks. They don't have a lot of money saved for retirement. So their only hope is that the market continues to go up. But hope is not an investment strategy. It's a four-letter word. And so I I do agree with you wholeheartedly that that Warren is, is walking a tightrope and you know, he, he actually doesn't have to worry about retirement. He's, he's pretty well taken care of, as are anyone who's invested with him over the years. And um, I do think, though, now, when you look out at valuations, I think to make the comment that he did, he thinks the S&P will outperform active management. If you really believe that, then make the bet with me, because I think he's wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, I think I used the term before we started recording, you know, false bravado. If, if you're not going to actually make the bet, then you can't make that claim. So, um, yeah. but you know, the, the, you know, way Buffett is kind of talking about the markets these days also, you know, it makes me think about, you know, that Carl Icahn video and, and, but it also makes me think about the Paul Tudor Jones Trader documentary where, you know, it starts in early 87 and he's talking about laying the foundation for this trade and shorting, you know, the stock market in the in the 87 crash and I think after that came out I mean you know he made I think it was at, at the time that was the, the most profitable trade in history um but I think after yep. that came out, he, he probably was embarrassed uh, that he was um, gloating or, you know, uh, during a crash where he made a ton of money and a lot of other people got really, really hurt. And, you know, Warren seems to me like the type of person he would do anything in his power to avoid see, you know, being seen that way, um, and which would just basically preclude him from ever being bearish publicly. So, yeah, um,
1: that's a very interesting perspective for sure.
0: Yeah, there's another, but you talk about being early, you know, the difference between being, you know, early and wrong. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fine line. I, I remember it was what two, almost three years ago now, I think Stan Druckenmiller gave the, the speech at the Lost Tree Golf Club where he talked about, you know, in 2004 five, he was feeling, you know, starting to feel very bearish and worry about what was going to happen to the markets. And it took two years for it to play out. Um, you know, he gave, he said he was feeling that way again in early 2015 uh, and even, you know, gave a presentation. I think it was at the SONE conference yep. later that year about all of these, you know, bearish dynamics at play. And, um, you know, it, it hasn't played out that way. But well, it did, Jesse,
1: know. though. Here's the interesting thing. It played out. Exactly as he laid out, gold started to do well. Industrial production rolled over. We had 21 months of downward industrial production. I think like 13 months of negative industrial production. PMI rolled over to sub 50, signaling contraction. There was a depression in the oil and gas industry and over $500 billion of CapEx got canceled or delayed. I mean, companies went down 85 90%. And a bunch of companies went bankrupt. I will argue that we were in a recession. And if it weren't for fudging the numbers with an understated PCE, price deflator, we would have been in recession. But what happened is China came to the rescue, just like they did in oh nine. Everybody wants to say that, that the Fed bailed out the U.S. and saved the world and Bernanke is such a hero. No. I mean, QE was was nice, but it was China. China put $4 trillion, with a T dollars of liquidity into the global financial system. In late 2015, as we were going downhill, remember the first two weeks of 2016? Oh, yeah. The market was down 12 14%. There was panic. Everybody was bearish. The economy was in contraction, I will argue. And China put a trillion dollars. And suddenly, we bounced off the bottom. They started, China started buying oil futures. Oil futures recovered. $26, Twenty-six dollars. Iron ore futures recovered. The speculative frenzy in the futures market with Chinese capital was extraordinary, and I'll make the case that exactly what Druckenmiller said was going to happen played out. And if not for the PBOC and the ECB and the BOJ, because remember the BOJ, where the year before Karoutason had lost his brain and tried to go to negative interest rates suddenly turned around and started buying assets again. Now they own 75% of all the ETFs in Japan. So there was this coordinated central bank effort to save the world. So do they do I think they save the world or do I think they just, you know, pushed back the ultimate day of reckoning? I think they pushed back the ultimate day of reckoning. And eventually we're going to have a slowdown and and look, I've I become, you know, almost as addicted to Sir Isaac Newton as, as Roger Babson was, that, you know, the third law applies. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And the longer you put off a correction and a recession, the higher the bubble and the bigger the crash.
0: Yeah. And, and I I wasn't arguing that Stan was wrong. I think I, I'm just kind of looking at it as People, you know, people do, which is he was su- suggesting a bear market was coming and now stock prices are higher two years later. But it makes me think of a, a great quote that I got from um, my friend uh, Bill Fleckenstein's website. It's from uh, Silas Marner. It's the lapse of time during which a given event has not happened is alleged as a reason why the event should never happen, even oh. when the lapse of time is precisely the added condition which makes the event imminent.
1: That is such a great line. Such I, I just think line. it's
0: – it's perfect because that's what Stan is talking about. He says, you know, I felt this, you know, over two years and he's expressed it to people and then, well, it didn't happen. So, you know, we can we can forget about that. And I think that's what's going on with Carl and what's going on, you know, with his warning two years ago, with Stan's warning two years ago. People are like, well, it didn't happen that way, so it's not going to happen. And as soon as people start dismissing it, I think that's where we are right now in this in this cycle. As soon as people start dismissing it, that's when it's about to happen.
1: Well, that's the delusion phase, right? And the new paradigm phase. Is, you know, greed, you know, everybody just wants to get rich. They got the FOMO, the fear of missing out, and everybody's just piling in. But then you get the delusion that, oh, well, the market could never go down. And all these bears who predicted it was going to go down are wrong. And that just proves that it can't go down. And then you get to the new paradigm, which is when people say, well, the market could never go down. There was an article uh, that I, tw- I retweeted the other night that where it said, Perhaps the market could never correct again. Like, what? Right. I mean, yeah. And is, says, "Well, the Fed put the Fed put the Yellen put. I'm like, remember, eighty-five percent of options expire worthless, and these and hers will too. The Greenspan put expired worthless from two thousand to two thousand two. The market went down fifty percent. The Bernanke put expired worthless. The market went down, peaked to trough fifty-eight percent in two thousand eight, and first part of nine. And the Yellen put's going to expire worthless too. But uh, and and back to just one clarifying point is I didn't say you were saying um, Miller was wrong at all. I was saying the marketplace right. is saying that he was wrong, but he wasn't wrong. We actually right. were in a recession. We were in a contraction. We were in the. I mean, we we're like you know one percent away from a bear market. We were down like nineteen percent peak to trough or something. And if you look at certain stocks they definitely or certain sectors they definitely were in a bear market. And so we've had this kind of rolling bear market. But the one thing we didn't count on and I think, you know, great investors they can change their mind when the facts change, but what separates a good investor and a truly great investor is a good investor just sells their longs or covers their shorts. But a great investor actually get short what they were long or gets long what they were short. And that's what Stan did, is the facts changed. China put in this trillion dollars of stimulus. The Norge pension fund suddenly had money to invest because oil prices were recovering again. The Swiss National Bank started buying stocks for some unknown reason. And suddenly you had this four-sharp S&P. And so Stan got long again. So great investors have... Strong opinions loosely held, and you know I take grief and you take grief. You, you, I take a little more grief than you on Twitter about you know being so you know strident in my views, or how can you say things like that? What if you're wrong? I'm like, well, I'm wrong all the time, but I don't care, right? It's not whether you're right or wrong; it's how much money you make when you're right and how much you lose when you're wrong. That's the paraphrasing of Druck and who's paraphrasing Soros. So. Um, If my ego needed to be right every time, I wouldn't be in this business because it's impossible.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny to me that it's, it's obvious in almost every other undertaking outside of finance that you have to have the courage of your convictions and be willing to fail. Uh, in order to be successful, but in in the financial markets now with this whole push to passive and everything it's oh no no, no, we don't have to have any convictions and we don't have to put ourselves in a position to fail we 're just going to buy the index and so anybody who's not doing that isn't so entirely well criticized you know uh, and it's really become a dogma that uh, that is is you know gets gets annoying but um i, I want to ask you you know if you know over the next Ten years, things are going to be difficult. Hedge fund strategies are going to outperform. Most investors can't invest in hedge funds. So, how should the average investor think about um, think about the markets and investing? If you know, if they can't afford to put money in, in a lot of these different funds,
1: yeah, it's it's really really important point. And and the good news is there are increasing numbers of strategies that the average investor can. Take part in so you know HDGE is an ETF that short stocks. It's hedged, as its name would imply. And there are some 40 act funds of, of reputable managers out there who've decided to to make their strategy available to the average investor who will never be accredited because the SEC is deemed that if you're not if you're not rich, you're not smart. That's that's kind of what the SEC says with accreditation standards, which I think is silly. But it is what it is. Um, It's probably not good to call the SEC silly. I don't mean that they are silly. I mean that that rule happens to be silly. Um, But uh, not inviting. (laughs) No kidding. Um, But, uh, you know, I I think the key is that there are more options for individuals uh, with ETFs and and other things. You know, it's funny. I've been been labeled an ETF um, criticizer, and that's just not true at all. I'm not critical of ETFs. I love ETFs and I love ETF strategies that make sense. I am very critical of certain ETFs, like low vol ETFs, which I think is the dumbest thing created in our history to buy stocks just because of the volatility of their stock price. But certain strategies or certain ETFs where you can get hedged, you can get long short, uh, I think are very, very valuable. And you know, the average investor today, if they're nervous about markets, could actually, you know be a value investor, buy what's cheap and sell what's expensive. There are inverse ETFs that you can go short, you know, overvalued sectors of the market. Like I think small cap stocks are as overvalued as I've ever seen them in my career. You know, the PE is 80 something. In fact, in, in the Wall Street Journal market um, segment or what do I call it, the market dashboard page, um, they, a couple months ago, it was actually labeled nil, meaning it wasn't calculable because there are so many companies that were losing money. And if you strip out the companies that lose money, it's only 88, 88 times earnings,
0: which <laughs> it's just, just yeah, doesn't make any astronomical.
1: Sense. If sense. Astronomical. It's astronomical. If you put the companies that are losing money back in, which you should, it goes up to like 800 and wow. something. So you can actually go short that index and go long the S&P which i think is less egregiously overvalued i still think it's egregiously overvalued but less so or you can get really creative and you could go long you know some portion of the emerging markets you could go long japan you could go long you know certain peripheral markets in europe which i think are are fairly valued so you can create your own hedged strategy but buying long and strong index funds that are cap weighted over the next 10 years I think you're going to destroy a lot of capital.
0: Yeah, and let's and let's talk about it specifically against you know I think Warren has said you know put ninety five percent of your money in the S and P five hundred you know just literally put it all in, in the U S stock market, and you know two I, two things I think are you know and I I guess I haven't written about this probably enough but I think are the bigger risks to investors today I mean typically a, um, they're not a good idea but one is uh, home country bias is not owning enough uh, diversifying overseas enough U S stock market is the most expensive on the planet. If you're only going to invest in U.S. stocks, you're you're taking a ton more risk than you think. But also, most people don't have enough exposure to real assets, um, I think, either in terms of just from like a broad asset allocation. Those are the two changes I'd probably make at first to that 95% in the S&P 500. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Look, the idea of putting 95% of your money in the S&P 500 here at these valuations, suicide, financial suicide. That just makes absolutely no sense. I don't care who is recommending it. That's just that's just a bad recommendation. Your point about home market myopia is absolutely spot on. And it's not just the United States. I mean, the people in the UK have more UK stocks. The people in Germany have more German stocks. People in Japan have more Japanese stocks. And the people in you know, Switzerland have more Swiss stocks, even though most of them aren't Swiss companies. But that's just the way it is. I mean, we all think all the smart people live where we live. We think, you know, we're we have all the answers in our country, and it's just not true. So, and most people don't believe me when I say over the last 15 years Chinese equities beat US equities. Like that's not true. I'm like what well, it is? It's it's just a fact, right? I mean, there are facts and there are beliefs, and people believe things because they have Recency bias, and they say, "Well, the last seven years, the U.S. was great. Yes, it was. In the last seven years, up until the last one year, because emerging markets have crushed the U.S. this year and most of last year in 16. But in the previous seven years, from 11 to 16, it was a one-way market. Right, the S and P outperformed emerging markets underperformed because they were heavy in real assets. Real assets underperformed. But today, as we sit here today real assets things are as undervalued relative to financial assets paper as they have ever been in history and to your point one of the most prudent things an investor can do today is get real you know own real stuff own commodities copper i mean copper is such a such an amazing thing i mean i just got back from china and A couple weeks ago, we had our annual meeting for our private fund and I just did a uh, webinar on on kind of travel notes or trip notes. And one of the things I I came away from being there, one is the scale and the scope of the growth in China is just incomprehensible to most people unless you go and visit and put your feet on the ground and and look up at three, you know, back to back to back 100 story buildings, which make New York look quaint. Um, Hmm. And then you talk to people about about growth, and you know when people get out of poverty, they say the first thing they buy is an air conditioner, and the second thing they buy is an air conditioner for their mom and dad, and the third thing they buy is an air conditioner for their uncle, because it turns out air conditioning is a really important thing. And yeah. you know, try, try working, you know, where I live in North Carolina in the summer without air conditioning, you can't do it. You can't you can't concentrate. You can't focus. Well, every time you take in, you buy an air conditioner, you're taking eleven pounds. Of metal out of circulation, a lot of it copper. And so the demand for copper is skyrocketing. Throw on top of that, all of the transmission wires that have to be put down for things like solar power, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, all the electrification that's going on in India. You got huge demand for copper wire. Then you take autonomous vehicles and you put 200 pounds of copper in every new car just massive demands for copper. Top, copper could double over the next four or five years. And you can take advantage of that in lots of different ways. Same, same is true. I mean, iron ore is not quite as compelling because the whole Earth's crust is made of iron ore. Um, precious metals are called precious for a reason. They're scarce uh, and they're interesting here. And then you get the whole industrial metals complex and you know some of the specialty metals like lithium and cobalt, which, look, if if we're ever going to have a test manufactured on a assembly line instead of by hand. I mean, I kind of thought it was a joke when they said they produced 255 last quarter when they were supposed to be producing 5,000 a week by December. It's just never, ever, ever going to happen. But if they were to ever ramp production, there's just not enough lithium and cobalt right now out there. So you got to find different ways to mine it or the price has got to adjust. So, so many opportunities in real assets that are really, really compelling. And look, good asset allocation is what drives long term returns. Buying assets that are cheap and selling assets that are dear over and over and over with discipline is what separates the great investors, um, the great endowments, foundations, sovereign wealth funds, wealthy families um, from the other investors. And that's why. You know, if you think about it, why does the average investor, the Dalbar study just came out, why does the average investor over the last 30 years underperform a buy and hold index by 60%? The index made eight and the average investor made three. And it's the same reason that they would have lost the bet with Ted Seides that Warren Buffett won because Warren Buffett wasn't allowed to sell. The average investor would have sold in year two when the s and p was down fifty eight percent and they would have missed the rally and they would have lost the bet no
0: question about and that's that. just yeah that's and that's just the sentiment cycle that you see in you know in every single bubble we saw it in real estate we saw it in stocks during that time the dot com mania was you know was on, on display (laughs) through those things. You know, it it strikes me when I'm talking with you and you've written about this too, that, uh, you know, it's kind of just common sense or it's, you know, largely held that to be a successful investor, you really need to be open-minded. And and you talked about how, you know, Stan Druckenmiller is so open-minded that he can, you know, change his mind when, you know, uh, very quickly. Um, you talk about having beginner's mind, um, in helping you analyze different investment opportunities. I think, that's something that's really valuable for um investors to to kind of understand can you talk about a little bit about that and 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 maybe how you um kind of approach the markets the same way newton you know uses the scientific method you, you mentioned him earlier too
1: yeah i mean i think a lot of it comes from and we talked about this for the first time is you know my training you know i have scientific training as a backdrop biology and chemistry major in college and And I really didn't know how that applied to investments until I got into investments. And I realized that all of investing is is simply forming a hypothesis, you know, testing the hypothesis, reform, gathering the data, reforming the hypothesis. And, you know, I have a friend, investment manager, hedge fund guy who says, says it best. He says, with every investment, we get richer or wiser, never both. And so you actually don't learn anything when you're right. You only learn when you're wrong. And so you form a hypothesis, you invest, it doesn't turn out. So now you have to reform the hypothesis. And, and this point about about the beginner's mind is is so important. And we talked last time about the Dow Jones averages, Dow is TAO for Chinese philosophy. And, and the key there is that uh, the beginner doesn't have all these biases, they don't have a home market bias, they don't have a, a bias that, you know, the S&P is the only way to invest. They don't have a bias that, you know, value is better than growth or growth is better than value or momentum is better than, than uh, some other strategy. And so they, they start with a, with a blank slate and they, and they form their beliefs the right way, which is you gather the data, you analyze the data, and then you form a belief or you form an idea. Most people do it exactly backwards. They're given their belief, either the media or from their parents or from, you know, consensus, they then gather data to support that thesis and worse, reject all the data that's counter to that thesis. Like one of the things I love about Twitter is whether you want it or not, you're going to get lots of counter data and you have to. Actually, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's great. Right? I mean, you have people who just yeah,
0: for sure. give
1: you the other side because they think you're an idiot. And that's very valuable.
0: Um, well, and a lot of times the other side is just you're an idiot. So that's less yeah, helpful. Yeah, but it's less ahead. helpful
1: to just get your <laughs> um, idiot. Right. I had a guy last night send me probably 20 charts making the case for why, you know, I'm wrong about deflation and inflation is coming. And that was very useful. He had a lot of good, interesting <laughs> points to make. And, and I appreciated that.
0: But yeah
1: part of. Of this this idea of, of beginner's mind and, and mindfulness and, and all this stuff is, is daunting. Some people like, oh, I don't want to be a, I don't want to meditate. I don't I don't want to be one of those guru guys. It's like not all about that. What it's about is if you constantly bathe in consensus, right? If you constantly bathe in the media and all the the, the stories, like like right now the the narrative is melt up. Every story you read is about the melt up, melt up, melt up, melt up. So all you're going to believe is that there's a melt up going on and you have to get in front of it and you have to buy, 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 buy. Well, what a true investor will do is they will find time for solitude. They will get away from the noise and they will spend time thinking deeply and reflecting on what they believe based on The data that they see. So what is the data that you see and and how do you interpret it? And then for me, and you mentioned it earlier, that how you make money is by having a variant perception from the consensus. I mean, I I quoted um, Mark Mobius earlier today in in my webinar, where he said that if you do what everybody else does, you're just going to have average performance. So you had to do something bold and different, like picking up and moving to Asia in the 1960s in order to have a differentiated career, which he has. And I think the same is true here is if you constantly listen to consensus and think that's the only answer, you're going to have performance that looks like the average. But if you're willing to have variant perceptions, and what is a variant perception? So a variant perception is a view that's materially different than consensus, okay, that if it were to come true, can actually make you a lot of money. And one of my favorite quotes is from Michael Steinhardt. that said, you know, we made all our money, big money from taking variant perceptions that turned out to be right. Because it's one thing to have a variant perception, but you actually have to be right.
0: Yeah, it's not enough to be contrarian. Um, you know, and, and I asked you this. I, I was reading about something in your latest uh, quarterly. Letter. And it just struck me as, wow, this guy's just really open minded and open to a lot of different possibilities. It reminded me of, I interviewed Tom McClellan was one of the first interviews I did in this podcast when I went up to Seattle. And he's got some indicators that are just, you know, out there. And most people are like, what, what, are you crazy, Tom? But he's not willing to dismiss something just because it looks crazy on the surface. So you know, speaking of surface, he has an indicator that shows a correlation between water, ocean surface temperatures and interest rates over long periods of time that he uses. And, and he doesn't care that, you know, hey, I, I can't really explain how it works, but it works. And so, you know, you wrote about, um, GAN cycles and eclipses in your latest quarterly letter. And to me, that, you know, kind of really rang a bell with t- some of Tom's work, which is, you know, comparing natural c- cycles in nature to cycles in markets. Could you, can you talk a little bit about kind of what you wrote about in that regard?
1: Absolutely. Cycles are, are so important. And, and what's really cool about nature is these cycles are so pervasive and it's, you know, it's everything from the nautilus shell to, you know, circadian rhythms to the cycle of, of the planets, right? I mean, we know the cool thing about eclipses is, is, is we know to the minute to the second when every eclipse is going to occur You know, for the next X hundred years, because we can calculate, thanks to Sir Isaac Newton, the path of the planets. And we know when the Earth and the sun and the moon are going to be on the same side of the planet. And what's really cool about about total eclipses is that the moon, which is significantly smaller than the sun, is precisely an inverse ratio. Of size to length difference, meaning its distance from the Earth is the inverse of the size difference so that it perfectly covers. And, and this was brought home to me because I, I took my son down to see totality for this last eclipse. And the reason I wrote my letter called Darkness Falls was about this eclipse that was coming up in August. And, and I thought that was the timing of, of what was going to happen in the markets and following the 1929 cycle. But it was amazing that in the hour leading up to the full totality, right? The, you know, the, the the sun, the moon's going across the sun, is getting you know smaller and smaller, of a sliver, sliver, and then suddenly, like a light switch, it's dark, and literally went from you know bright daylight to darkness, and for two minutes and forty one seconds. And the most amazing thing to me was was literally. One second later, it was it was fully bright again. So just that littlest sliver of the sun was enough to illuminate the whole world, which was was kind of wild. So yeah. the fact that the two heavenly bodies could be that perfectly aligned to cause this this total eclipse is just it's kind of one of those cool things in, in nature that, that we have to pay attention to. But what I loved about eclipses and, and, and cycles is that. Human beings make up markets and human beings aren't, um, don't operate on cycles. And they don't operate on rationality. They operate on emotion. And so, you know, here we have Sir Isaac Newton, one of the smartest men ever in, in our life, in our world, not our lifetimes, but in our world, who got caught up in the South Sea bubble and, and lost everything, chasing a, a hot stock because the price was going up. His only reason for buying it was because the price was going up. Wait, that sounds familiar. People say that now. The you know, reason to buy stuff is because the price is going up, right? And the the key is that he said, you know, I can calculate the movement of heavenly bodies, but I can't predict the madness of, of people. And so that got me to dive deeper into cycle research. And I've always been a believer in this idea that um, the lunar cycles and the solar cycles and the seasonal movement of the stars and the planets actually has an impact. And, and the reason I believe that is when I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a doctor and I worked in an emergency department. And you know, one of my first nights in the emergency department, we had a full moon and we had 10 times the number of patients that night. And so I asked the nurse, I said, what the heck's going on? I said, oh yeah, it's every full moon. I said, what do you mean every full moon? So yeah, people go crazy on full moons. And then I got married and it turns out my wife doesn't sleep very well when it's a full moon. I mean, it actually physically impacts her. Same with my daughter. And so I started doing research into this. And there are a couple of people, this W.D. Gann, who wrote this study in the 1900s, early 1900s, where he calculated all the relationships of these big cycles that had occurred over time. And then he laid out in very specific detail for the next hundred years what would happen based on these ideas of cycles of highs and lows in markets over different cycles, 16-year cycles and 60-year cycles and 80-year cycles. And he actually predicted things like the crash in 87 and the crash in 2008 and the recession in 1991 and and all these things that, that lined up perfectly with these cycles. And you dig deeper into it and you're like, wait a second. And then I also knew that um, people like Paul Tudor Jones and Lewis Bacon and Stan Druckenmiller were really serious disciples of not only Gann, but of this guy um Bradley and the um, um Bradley uh, what the heck is that thing called? I just just ran out of my head. Um ciderograph. So this guy Bradley wrote a book in the 50s talking about how again these lunar cycles have an impact on human behavior and that markets would fluctuate around certain days of the year. And again, he laid out this you know for the next 70 plus years. And you know, Paul and Lewis and these guys would use these cycle dates or what are called Bradley turn dates as an indicator of of when cycles and, and things would turn. And I'll give you a great example. So you know listeners can go check this out. So, um, turn dates and both Bradley turn dates and GAN dates uh, are similar. There's a GAN date every three months, uh, usually around the 21st or 22nd of the month in each quarter. So, a March, a June, uh, September, and a December. And there was a Bradley turn, I'm mean, sorry, a GAN turn date on um, June 22nd. So pull up charts of Russia um, and oil and a couple other things related to hard assets that have been trending down all year. And look what happened on, on June 22nd. And you know, we just came to another turn date on September 22nd, and you can see a number of, of patterns that had been strongly trending one way, suddenly turned, the dollar being the most the most notable. So trends tend to change on these, these turn dates and they have to do with cycles and research. And, you know, when I talk about this, some people say, yeah, that's just absolutely ridiculous, right? How could the moon and the sun and the stars have an impact on markets? And like, well, if they impact humans, humans make up markets. And I think they're going to have an impact. So it's one thing to use, Um, in addition to other things, and, um, but, but I think something I believe.
0: And I, I applaud your open mindedness in this regard because I mean, you know, I, I've gotten trashed because I sometimes, you know, pull up analogs of, you know, previous market patterns and you look at, you know, one, two, three year pattern of the market and you have a 96% correlation to today's pattern. That's pretty interesting. That's, you know, one of the tools Paul Tudor Jones used to predict the 87 crash. Um, I think, uh, I remember Jim Rogers used it, the 1937 analog when he traded the 87 crash. And so there, yeah, all these things are just tools, but you know, speaking of that, are there specific books or things that you, you learned to, or used to, to learn about Gannon Bradley?
1: Well, you know, the, there, there are a couple of good biographies on, on both of these guys. And I, I read excerpts of them. Uh, nice thing is they're, they're actually online. You don't even have to buy the book. You just you know, they're on whatever that big is a Google library or whatever that puts all the books up. Um, yeah. And, you know, there, there, so I read a little bit of the biographies. Um, there's also a, a website, um, I think it's called the cycles Institute. I should know the name of it, but I think it's called the cycles Institute. And it talks about a lot of the history of Gann in particular um, in terms of, of Bradley uh, that there's a whole bunch of stuff on him because a little bit newer and and a a lot of there I, i just picked up off websites one of the fun things about going to these websites is it's the intersection of astrology numerology philosophy and a whole bunch of you know esoteric stuff that people don't don't really like and you know another one that i i do pay attention to that again some people think i'm crazy um, I pay attention to the Chinese New Year and the the animals that dominate that particular year. You know, you know and there's certain years that are more vulnerable than others, and and so there's a there's a guy Paul Win, I think that's how you pronounce it. Ng um, is the last name, and and he's a famous astrologer. And every January, I make sure I read his forecast for the year, and he is uncannily prescient in um how he lines up things that have to do with chinese new year and this and the lunar cycles etc so there's a lot of different ways to to incorporate this and um there's actually a cool piece that i stumbled across um when i was doing research on on gan um and actually on on uh, roger babson there's another guy I can't remember his first name, but Benner, is it Samuel? Samuel Benner, B E N N E R. And he wrote a book in the late 1800s about commodity cycles. And I think that book kind of circulated amongst these guys as well. Um, But again, he predicted things that would happen 30, 40, 50, 60 years later with with amazing prescience. So, um, but there are a lot of of resources out there. But one thing I stumbled across is when I was looking at W.D. Gann's work, is I came across the letter that he issued in November of 1928, where he basically predicted the whole year of 1929, from the March low to the June low to the September peak, and then the crash after that. And along with that, in his supply and demand letter, he had a reading list. And it's a little tough to make out because it's, it's like a scan of an original document, but there are some amazing books on numerology and astrology and, and things that if you really want to dive into this stuff, there's, there's some interesting stuff out there. But, um, to dismiss something either because you don't understand it or you have a bias against it, I think is short sighted. Um, you may not want to incorporate it and live by it. Um, but it's like the people who file japanese candlesticks or the people who buy or demark indicators they're all proven to work in certain scenarios and they're all proven to work with other parts of an of a broader analysis and i believe in I, you know i don't know if i t- coined this term but i believe in technamentals you know the the combination of technicals and fundamentals and just copying what the greats did which kind of how i live my life so Soros looked at him, Druckenmiller looked at him, Paul Tudor Jones, all these guys um, who have done really, really well in their careers and lives as investors, all believed in this stuff. So it's probably good enough for me
0: yeah and i've done I've done the same and they're all just i think there there is no holy grail, but they're all tools that have their uses and you know you 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 can't build a house with just one tool you know you need to find a good combination exactly. of tools to to get them done but exactly. uh, yeah exactly. you know um i and I'll put up a bunch of these uh links and stuff and resources on, when I put uh on on the dot com i'll put up a post for this podcast but uh mark i'm really grateful to you for sharing your wisdom like this that was a blast Um, and, uh, you know, thank you very much.
1: Well, look, I, I, I always have the most fun, you know, hashtag big fun when, when you and I get together and talk, uh, you are one of those unique interviewers that, that can take me down paths. I I didn't imagine when we start the interview and, uh, you keep the conversation, uh, really, uh, Turning back new pages and, and new layers, uh, rather than just the surface sound bites that, that aren't really helpful to people. So, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being nice enough to, to have me back. Probably too soon, um, so you know, don't want to be overexposed, so to speak.
0: But uh, <laughs> not, really, not at really all.
1: enjoy. I really enjoyed talking with you and, and hope the listeners enjoyed
0: no, it. I, I think we could do it, you know, three, four more times in short order and still not cover everything we want to cover. So, yeah, it was awesome. Thank you very much. We'll do it again.
1: Thanks, Jess.
0: And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. For links and charts and a bunch of other stuff that Mark and I talked about during this episode, visit com forward slash podcast. Um, thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Staring back at him. At that moment, a man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.